I'm Aeson, and this is the Friday Show. Been a weird and wonderful morning in the world of the 9320 podcast, but we persevere nonetheless. Uh, joining me to get stuck right into this week in City World, I have got two big, big hitters, Mr. Howard Hockey, Mr. Stephen Tudor. Good morning, Steve. Uh, good morning. Just to inform you, Aysan, uh, Howard referred to me as the one and only Steve yesterday. <gasps> so from now on, from moving forward, if that could be the, the norm, that would be that'd be yeah. wonderful. I'm delighted to be joined by the one and only Stephen Tudor. Good morning, Steve. Damn straight. Morning all. <laughs> <laughs> Howard, how are you? Yeah, I'm fine, thank you. Excellent, excellent. Um, you don't well, have to yes. say one and only for me, because <laughs> no one can have my name anywhere else in the world. So, <laughs> you, 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 you are the ubiquitous Howard Hockey. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, Steve's are just two a penny, aren't they? So. <laughs> God, we've started early. <laughs> well, it's just, just a fact. It is a fact, yeah. I have to have You're a coming. Common name. <laughs> yeah, Harsh. In a possible way. Harsh, but Very fair, harsh, yeah. gentlemen. Very harsh. Settle down. Um, so look, it has been a weird and wonderful morning this morning, um, but we do have a Friday show to do. It is Pep Guardiola's birthday today. Happy 48th birthday, I believe, to Pep. So in honour of his birthday, this is your opening question, Howard. What is your favourite Guardiola memory from his first couple of years in charge at City? Yeah, as I was just saying off air, I ain't got one. <laughs> I've been racking my brain for half an hour. Uh, because it's been more a gradual thing and I'm thinking of one specific moment you're going to mention I'll leave the press conferences to I think you'll mention something in the press conference and uh, yeah as I don't really watch press conferences conferences I still think he's been pretty uh, withering in the way he's dealt with them in the press uh, and to be honest when and Steve's I'm, I'm part Nick and Steve's in a way but the very happiest Pep Guardiola has made me is the precise moment it broke on Twitter that he was going to be our manager. <laughs> because I don't think yeah. I've ever been happier. <laughs> I don't think I've been happy that moment. Honestly, I was at work and I was just bouncing off walls, like almost running into the street and telling people. Uh, and just knowing that it was coming was enough for me uh, mm. because I knew, I knew then that uh, we were going to have some pretty great times on a much smaller note, and it it wasn't the most important moment. Uh, and that, you know, we're playing Southampton, and we needed to win to get 100 points. Uh, and that's this is the thought that just comes into my head, so maybe it's the wrong answer. Uh, I was playing it down because it wasn't a very good match. I thought, well, 98 points will do. Yeah, it's not important. Done that 100 points. So when that goal went in at the end, I think my reaction, but his reaction as well on the side, said it all. Mm. Because at that moment, his his team had made history, uh, so him running down the uh, touchline is the memory that pops into my head first. Okay, that's a, a that was in my uh, it was in my in my list of five. Um, Steve, what about for you? Um, a favourite memory would be his kind of put down of Gary Neville when he said, um, "Gary, you know, Gary Neville should know this. He too was a manager." Pause. For a short time, <laughs> it was wonderful. And, and like all the best put downs, it's got deniability. You can basically, you know, feign it, uh, innocence and say, "Well, yeah, you were," you know. So, um, yeah, I was just absolutely pitch perfect. And also, on a personal note, my wife is not into football, and for a good period of time when we were together, you know, she had no interest in in City. And so, if I, I talked about it, she just closed down, you know. 
Um, and there's two people who have changed that. One is Raheem Sterling. She goes to games basically to watch Raheem um, in a very motherly fashion. And the other reason is Pep Guardiola. And when we sat, when we signed Pep, when Pep uh, came to City, um, I think I showed her the, the, the kind of opening press conference he, he gave. And her eyes lit up and she was like, wow, who's that? Kind of half fancying him and half thinking he is one cool mother, you know. Um so yeah, I, I thought, well, it's made my life a lot easier, frankly. I can now talk about City, and when I do talk about City, inevitably, Han's response would be, you know, oh, and what did Pep think of that, or what did Pep do? So yeah, it's just made my life easier, Pep Guardiola, in many He's made my life better and easier. Yeah, but <laughs> very, similar in my, very similar in my household when it comes to Pep's appointment and how how Claire's a bit more interested in, in City now. Um I think for me, it's probably the John Stones balls press yeah, conference yeah. because I think that at that moment in time, <clears throat> Stones was getting a lot of criticism and he needed to be defended in the most robust fashion. And it's rare that you see managers, you know, kind of turn to the entire press room and say something in the manner in which he said it. And for him to say he's got more balls than all of you, is just you know, uh, yeah, I, I loved it. Um, so that that was the ve- that that was the very first thing that popped into my head, which is why that's that's the first thing that I've said. Um, I think conducting his own song after Leicester away in the uh, in the cup <laughs> last season was uh, was utterly utterly massive. And I actually, I'm going to bring up one, and I appreciate that it's not from his time at City, but it's kind of connected actually when he was. Believe Bayern Munich manager and Jamie Jackson asked him a question in a press conference, and rather than, well, he basically told Jackson to look at him. He basically he started answering, then he stopped and he went look at me. He basically then lectured him on manners and said, you know, you should look at me when I, uh, you ask me a question, you want me to answer it. You should look at me when I'm when I'm answering you. And for him to take on Jackson in that way was. Uh, was very nice and very fun to see. So Jamie Paradise, as he's also known. Yes, my apologies. <laughs> he's a very good fiction writer. I've, I, I have it on uh, have it on on really good authority. Those people who have read his work tell me that he's he's a very talented fiction writer, which doesn't surprise me at all. Yeah, um, it's non-fiction he struggles with. It's not for me. I've read excerpts, but yeah, each to their own. So <laughs> okay, um, right. Uh, just one very very quick thing. Not yeah, the, the moment it was announced he was going to become our manager, uh, it wasn't just the fact we'd got him. It was just the drivel before and the, the media-led stuff. And we now we know now that he agreed months before, uh, you know, with these leaks and whatnot. The Pep prefers United stuff that had come out a month before. I don't know what where it came from, what it was for, but just to have it all nailed down and just to see United fans deflated because some still believed he was gonna. Oh no, United with a bigger draw, and if we, you know, that they'd get Pep instead of us. Uh, so it's just a beautiful moment for for just that extra reason as well. So. Yeah, yeah, go along with that. Um, okay, so the main show today, um, kind of looking back at, at what's been, I guess, a little bit of a quiet week in comparison to the last few weeks where we've been playing three games a week and so many cup cup games. Uh, the first order of business for me is that City have signed uh, Antti Palaversa 
who was 18 from Hadjik Split for 8 million euros. Um, hopefully by now, everybody has seen uh, the excellent video that um, a Steam company did uh, talking about him. Or either Steve did a video or he retweeted a video that somebody else did talking about him that was excellent. Typical either way, well, Steve. Yeah, well worth, <laughs> well worth checking out. Um, now, now, gentlemen. <laughs> Play nicely. Appreciate it's been a long morning already, but let's play nicely. Um, My question is not really related to Antti because I suspect that none of us have really seen him play. And so we don't really know how good or bad he is. One thing I do know is that he does look a little bit like a mini Frankie de Jong. He plays the similar position, has a similar kind of style of play. My question for both of you is more this. Does it bother you Whenever transfer windows roll around, or certainly in the last three or four years, it's felt like every window, there's one or two players who come in at this sort of level, this sort of price. I actually think Zinchenko's a good example. And you're never quite sure about whether they're for our first team or whether they're going to be sent out on loan or you know what the purpose of the signing of that player is. I think we kind of, you know, I guess we come from a history of when City used to sign players, generally it was because they were going to play for Man City. Um, It's not really the case all the time anymore. And I just wonder whether it bothers either of you. Um, Steve, I'll start with you. Just generally, do you think that bothers you? Yeah, it doesn't bother me one iota. It, It would, of course, bother me if it was a case of us signing these youngsters, um, with an eye to kind of, you know, sending them out to, um, other franchises, if you like, within the SFG, that would bother me if these signings were taking place instead of signings for the first team. But it's in addition to, it's as well as. So it doesn't bother me at all. Um, and there's always a great deal of intrigue and fascination that surrounds the signing of unknowns because, you know, if someone came to me and, and claimed that they were aware of this kid, I would say, you know, they were a liar, frankly. <laughs> Because I've, I've not even heard of a lad until we signed him. Um, and so that brings with it some fascination and some intrigue and, and a bit of YouTubing and a bit of research. And I like that. Um, so, yeah, it just it doesn't bother me. We're, we're, it's, Manchester City is a business. It's a global business. Um, and they want to make money and they want to re- recruit the, the best talents available at the best prices. And they've got a really good track record of doing that. Um, you know, you look at Aaron Moy just as one example of many, many, um, and and the manner in which he made a profit from that. Mm. Um, if, if this is the case with this lad, then so be it. Personally, I don't think it is because he, as you said, he's a kind of a, a, a little version of, of Frankie De Jong. He's in a holding, he plays in a holding midfield role, which City are you know really short of. Um, so is it a case where he might be sent out for a year to Girona or, or Melbourne or wherever um, and then is brought back uh, in contention for a first-team spot? I think that is l- pretty likely in this lad's case. Okay. Um, Howard, what about you? Yeah. Is, there a, is there a sense that morally, is there a sense that we're doing something does it does it make you uncomfortable that we use this as a revenue raising no. uh, academy? No. Do no, you we think don't. we owe? It's hold both. on, I'm not done. I mean, it's both. Uh, hang on, hang on. Let me just ask this second part, and then you can answer the whole thing. Um, 
do you do we have a duty to the players in the academy to sh- give them an opportunity or give them a pathway to the first team no okay <laughs> we have a, a duty well, depending on age, the very youngsters have a duty to educate them, to provide for them, to develop them, to look after them. You know, a duty of care, in a way, as very young human beings, you know, at the start of a career. Uh, and we have a duty, and let's be honest, you know, the discussions about players leaving, we're not destroying these players. Then it would be an issue. If, if they're just rotting away in a reserve team somewhere, this would be a very big issue. As long as the players are okay, as long as their career paths take the path they should do, you know, subject to their own talent, then there's no problem for anyone. And I mm. think they realise that. I don't think they're just coming here just for, you know, because there's a nice little academy and the facilities are nice and they get an education. This can affect the parents. You know, the parents are involved for the very young players. But I think they know that they're going to get a footballing education as well. So if it doesn't work out at City, they'll be fine, you know. Obviously, the top levels are going to the Bundesliga now, but there'll be other. There's a lot of top class teams out there who will take them. the The other side of this is, I don't. Even if we were very successful integrating players into the the team, uh, the vast majority still wouldn't never get there. Because how many? I don't know how many players there are in the academy, but obviously the vast majority there's not enough <laughs> room in a in a football team for them all to make it. So most won't make it anyway. What people get upset is, you know, is a select four or five that they think deserve to make it. And mm. That's where the arguments really drill down into. The rest, mm. they pay for the academy itself, and you hope that the players make uh, a successful career. Now, we've not. I don't think we buy these players just to make money. So there was like, is it Moreno that there's one called Moreno, and I think Tim Vickery said he was one of the most exciting talents, and he's Marlos just Moreno. Yeah, and he's. This, you know, and he looked really exciting like this our current signing does and that's not gone well and you look at you know uh, Atletico Madrid Girona put Atletico Madrid out there I think it was the Copa del Rey this week and they had uh, Alex Garcia and, and Louise in midfield there but my thought is I don't truly believe any of them are coming back to us and that's yeah. and I would like a slight change in emphasis I hope we're buying them hoping not to make money, but that they will they will buy the odd one thinking, oh, we can make move that on for money. And I think Moy Moy was obviously that. Yeah. Uh, but I think with signings like this, there must always be the hope that they are there, that they end up at City as a first teamer. And if they make Absolutely. money and if they just end up making money, then so be it. And I yeah. don't think we signed the light of Garcia, Luis or Moreno just to make money. I think yeah. they saw potential, we're loaning them out and we're just hoping they develop. And some don't, some do. Uh, but my thought is, will we ever see any of the last batch ever come back to City? I'm not so sure myself. I think I don't. I mean, I don't follow them, so I don't know how well they're doing. Uh, but you've got this problem that Fernandinho was saying, like he's got another year in him, so we can't wait for an 18-year-old to develop. We need him replaced immediately, and it's just the way we need a left back now to go into the first team. That's the problem. We're mm. going to have to think- make big signings as well. But I'm, I, I really hope we do move a bit towards this and find future talent rather than just going out and buying fifty million pound players all the time just to fill a gap, because mm. it must with our scouting network and knowledge, yeah, you know, we should be able to do this. I think that 
So I think there's two things within that. I think that firstly, in terms of in terms of the players who go out on loan, my personal opinion is that if you're sent out on loan, it's because City believe you have no future at City. I think yeah. that their point of view with players who they believe have a future at City is that they would rather keep them around and have them learn and develop, train with Pep, learn, develop, and bide their time and wait their turn. So if he's generally if you're sent out on loan, then I think I think that's you. From a from a first team point of view, um, I, I kind of I see where you're coming from in terms of you know the idea of developing players versus buying players, but I, I just I don't think it's realistic be, for, for what you said earlier because I think the unknown in all of this is generally when you sign young players, you City are signing young players who have a lot of potential but whether or not they're going to realize that potential nobody knows and it's almost like you know it's the one thing that you can't predict and it's you know it's funny because i had this conversation yesterday uh about there's some lad in united's reserves right now right or in their under 18s who score he's got like a ridiculous goal scoring record yeah and Mason Greenwood. Yeah, and a United fan was going on to me about how he's the future and he's mm. going to eclipse Rashford. And I'm just like, that's just, firstly, that's just nonsense. And secondly, the reason you can't know that is because you said the same thing about Rashford two years ago and you just don't know what a player's development arc is going to be. Some players, they, def, you know, they, they have a rapid ascent. Like somebody like Sterling, he went from a kid to a Premier League footballer literally within 12 months well look at Ian Acho yeah yeah there's a there's there's another one so I just I think it's it's so difficult to know how a player's going to develop that of course in an ideal you want to be able to to use the academy to fill out the squad or to develop players but you can't it's not a guarantee um and then kind of moving forward from that the kind of the next bit of this, which I want to ask you both about, is do the players owe City a loyalty? And the reason I asked that question is because there's obviously a lot of rumours this week that City are going to lose Rabi Matondo, who I believe has been at the club since he was seven or eight years old. Mm. And the word is that he's not going to sign a new contract. So they're going to lose him either for free or for a minimal amount to a club. Apparently there's Premier League clubs interested and there's Bundesliga clubs interested now looking at this from city's point of view we employ the best coaches we provide the best facilities we provide the best educational facilities to really um develop these kids in the best possible fashion is it then a little bit disloyal for these kids to or their advisors to almost turn around at, at, at 17, 18 and go, right, don't sign another contract here. Go somewhere very cheap because you'll get a big wage and then you'll probably get a big transfer out of that next club in the future as well. And the one thing that that does is it deprives City of a decent transfer fee. I think Sancho is an excellent example of a player who refused to sign a contract, similar to the Hudson-Odoi situation where... You know, they've developed a player over a period of time. And then at the moment where he's good and ready, he goes, actually, I don't want to sign a contract now. So I'm just going to leave. Thanks for the development. Is that okay? Steve, I'll start with you. Well, I kind of, it's half and half for me. The actual, what you latterly said, 
about kind of moving on uh, to depri- and depriving the club that has kind of developed you of, of, of a fee, that is kind of somewhat unsavoury, isn't it? I mean, we've seen with Declan Rice recently that he's done the opposite of that. He's, you know, kind of trebled his wages, signed a big, nailed himself down to is it a five- or six-year contract, where it's quite clear that Declan Rice is going to be leaving West Ham within the next year. Um, and so what he's essentially doing is, uh, is he is complicit with the club and saying, OK, you've brought me through, I'll sign this contract, so when someone comes in for me, I benefit and you benefit. So, you know, that's a very commendable thing to do, I think. Um, in, in the case of Jaden Sancho, you know, that, the opposite applies and that leaves a somewhat of a sour taste. However, where I fall down, you know, where I kind of see the flip side of it is I don't blame Jaden Sancho one bit for moving on. It was the right thing for him to do, yeah. as has been illustrated by how he's now kind of, you know, made it to the England national team and, and he's being talked about and he's making a real impact. As regards to Rabbi Matondo, I would look at that from a Welsh perspective, which in itself would reflect on how I feel about the, the matter in general and as regards to City, because Rabi Matondo will not make it at Manchester City. He just won't. I mean, I've only seen clips and bits and bobs of him, but I've, I've talked to people who have seen him regularly and they say he is not of the standard, you know, that, that truly elite standard, the Phil Foden standard, where he wouldn't break into the Manchester City team. But he's Welsh, and I want him to be playing first-team football and playing Premier League football or Bundesliga football and to help the national team. So I would would have no problem at all with him moving on. It, it's better for him, and it's better for his career. Mm. And the extension of that is it's better for you know the Welsh national team. So that in itself kind of says something, really, where even as a City fan, I'd be fine with him moving on. It's It's... You can look at it from different angles, and when you do, I come back to the same scenario, the same kind of answer, which is you've got to do what's best for the player because in this game of football, in the modern game of football, there is an awful lot of guff talked about loyalty. Awful amount. I mean, you look at managers and say, oh, God, he's left that club to go to that club. Well, if he hadn't, two weeks later, he could have been sacked and neither the club nor the fan base would have cared one jot. It's got to be both ways, loyalty, and it isn't in modern-day football. So, you know, you kind of got to look after yourself to an extent. Yes, it's a two-way street. I mean, the the club would, you know, get rid of a player easily. So, yeah, you know, are are they allowed to do that? Is that fine? Is a grey area, but I don't have a problem with it. Really, I don't. I don't think there's such thing as loyalty. You have contracts, and it's all money moving around, and it's a job at the end of the day. And uh, you know, if someone wants to change job in any other any other sector, you wouldn't be. You know, it wouldn't be a problem. Uh, obviously, some big businesses have stuff in. You know, like Guardian Leave, they have these things that you don't work for competitors and stuff like that. So it's you know, it's not totally that simple in the rest of the, the outside world. But the player must do what's best for them, and they don't think they're going to get in the first team for a few years. Then now I don't see a problem with it. Uh, City didn't bring these players through as a charity; they brought them through yeah, exactly. because they might yeah. be you know a valuable asset one day. Hmm. Uh, and that's oh, yeah. but but I I guess that's my question. I think so. At, firstly, I think I'd like to make a distinction between Jaden Sancho and uh, Rabi Matondo. In yeah. that Sancho's a lad who we signed from Watford, I believe. 
when he was 15 or 16. Um, slightly different situation, right? He doesn't owe us anything. He came from Watford in the first place. Um, and he's with, a better player as well. Yeah, with, distant, yeah. With, with Matondo, or in general, what I'm talking about is your, your future Sean Wright Phillips, right? The lads who've been here since they were 9, 10, 11, 12 years old, yeah, and fully been developed by City. Um, is there a, is there not a sense that it's only okay because we're rich? That if we were the old city, this is exactly the kind of manoeuvre that you'd look at and just go, that's disgraceful. We've developed you. And you're now basically going, nah, I, I'm not going to sign a contract because I don't think that you should get a transfer fee for me because... I'm my own person and I'm my own business and I want the best deal possible for me. And the best way that I'm going to get that is by running my contract down at Manchester City. You, neither of you have a problem with with a player doing that after City have developed them from childhood. No, not at all, no. Alexander. And the reason I don't have a problem with it is because you mentioned there about Jaden Sancho and starting off at Watford. So City were the bad boys there. We were the bad guys. You know, imagine being a Watford fan. You said then in a hypothetical situation of the city of old, yep. bringing, bringing a player through and then seeing him move on. That's what we did to Watford. And, and you know, he started at Watford in 2007. So yep. that's like, you know, he was a kid. He was a child. He was seven. Um, so, yeah, we we were the ones there. So it, that's, that's that's what I mean about you've got to look at both angles. It's a two-way street. And football in general is a very, very unsavoury business. We're taking think- players off Barcelona of... You know, they've brought up since they were nine years old and we're oh, taking no, them totally. for the 16. So you totally. win some, you lose. It's a battle, isn't it? You know, yeah. That's how it goes. You win that, some, that you lose That aspect of football is, is, you know, really, really unedifying, frankly. Yeah, I mean, it probably it's, is, yeah. Yeah, it's cutthroat. I mean, and yeah, it, to find morality within that whole kind of um, environment of, of youth football, you're going to have to go a long way to, to find even a modicum of it. I completely agree. And to be honest, I'm playing devil's advocate to a oh, greater yeah. or a lesser yeah. extent. It's just, it's an interesting, it was an interesting perspective that was presented to me a couple of days ago. Just this idea of, well, aren't these kids being disloyal to a club that has is giving them the best possible opportunity to shine and to develop and to realise their own potential? But like you say, football clubs are ruthless operators and when they don't want you, they're done with you. Do you know what I mean? So... <laughs> Yeah, um, that's was 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 that somebody uh, a fanfare for that my comment? Answer, yeah, fanfare for my answer. I like that. I like that. Nice one, lads. It's just um, one comment of the day. Well done. <laughs> okay, let's let's move forward. Um, the only game we've got to look back on is is Wolves on Monday night. I thought our review was pretty good, to be honest with you. Um, if you're not a member of the ninety three twenty player and you don't get our reviews, check it out. It's worth worth signing up for. It does cost a tiny, tiny bit of money to to join the ninety three twenty player, but you do get reviews of games and lots of lots of other podcasts. But yes, looking back at the Wolves game, um, Steve, your thoughts on the pressure going into the game and then the performance itself? Well, the pressure going into the game was quite. It felt quite odd because it was one of those where. Um, cause like I was in the town league beforehand and, and kind of talking to different people and everyone else seemed to be the same as me where they were talking up the pressure rather than feeling it. Um, so it was a case of, you know, we we obviously have to win tonight. Um, you know, this is such a crucial game. 
But at the same time, it didn't feel like a crucial game. It felt like it was going to be a relatively straightforward three points. There was a lot of optimism as well. Um, and thus proved to be the case. I mean, God, within a space of 20 minutes, all pressure had dissipated completely because, you know, we were a goal up uh, and a man up. Um, and that kind of killed the game, really. And for the rest of the game, certainly the last hour, just felt like a training ground exercise. Um, Wolves kind of gave up the ghost, but, you know, I'm not, not don't even mean that in a negative sense. It was just kind of accepted reality, the reality of the situation. Um, and City just kind of played it around the edge of the box and looked to try and get a third or fourth. So, yeah, it was quite... And, and when people kind of, in hindsight, you know, when afterwards when people were, were kind of talking about the atmosphere, there was no club in the world who would have generated an atmosphere from that situation, from that game. You know, especially if you include the fact it's a Monday night and it's cold and all the rest of it, and everyone's sitting down. There was no club in the world who would have generated an atmosphere in that game. Oh, no. been deathly silent at Anfield or anywhere else, but, you yeah. know, that's not a narrative, is it? So. Um, so, Howard, if you look at that performance, um, was there... Are there signs that we're getting back to what I would consider our early autumn best? Or is there still... Because I think there's been, a lot, there's been a lot of talk over the last month of City giving up a lot of chances defensively and not being particularly defensively sound. And I can't quite put my finger on whether we've got a situation right now where we are so spoiled by how good we are that whenever somebody does something good to us, we immediately go, oh my God, there must be something wrong with our team. Or whether there is actually some a bit loose about our defence. So where do you sit on that? Yeah, I don't think anything's really changed in loose in our defence. You know, we discussed on the review, I think it's the way they play, that if they lose, if you lose the ball in certain areas in midfield, there will be spaces there because of the way the pressing and the attacking football we play. I feel we are some way back there because back to what we were. I don't, I mean, we can't be so spoiled that we don't expect the opposition to have a chance. I mean, that would be ridiculous. And, I, you know, I've seen people actually get quite worried because the opposition had like two half chances in a game. And exactly. it's like, well, yeah, but we scored four and missed six sitters. So, you know, weigh it up. Do you want to play for 1-0 win or do you want this football? What did Wolves have? Well, they had a player who got into a lot of space on the right of the penalty area and he put in a terrible cross. And there was that loose, you know, that break where they got the ball on the left that was wasted. It was a shot come cross. I'm not sure he knew what he was doing. It could have been a goal, but that was it. Really, can't think of many other chances, and these are aside with an excellent, you know, good. They've invested big, you know, through their their method of ownership uh, and agent uh, collaboration. They've got good players, and they've stung a lot of top six sides, including us this season. I don't really think we could complain about the chances we allowed the opposition on on uh, Monday night, and I think, and we always, you know. We don't know what other other gears we had to go into because we played that game out after the, the red card, I think. So, you know, we can't say, well, they could have had a goal here and there and it might have been different because I assume we'd have stepped up a gear if so because I think mm. we, we had more to give, but that was a team that was just 
that was uh, game management all the way. And I do see, I see us suffer. What well, our peak, we were suffocated other teams. And I won't say we're absolutely at our peak, but they are doing that again. You saw in the first 15 minutes against Wolves that they were just starved of the ball completely. And that's mm. that's how we'll be successful. If they are obviously if the, the opposition don't have the ball, they can't do anything to us. So Yeah. Um Steve, in terms of the, the big talking points uh, across the game, obviously the red card is the earliest and the biggest one. Was it a red card for you? Um I've still only seen it in real time. That's that's one of the only instant actually I've not seen back yet. Um, I've seen stills of it on Twitter because obviously Liverpool fans are comparing it to, to Vinny with Salah and stuff. So um, you can clearly see in the stills that he's got his, his foot up. All I could see was that the ref straight away had got word that this was a red because you know he didn't consider for a second a yellow. I, as soon as it happened, I looked at the ref and I, I turned to someone next to me and said, it's a red. You know, you could tell by his demeanour, it was instant. He was like, okay, weighing this up, right, that's a red. Yes, no no question about it. The player himself has kind of come out and apologised. The Wolves' managers come out and said it was a red. Um, so I don't see where the talking point is, you know, kind of from people who, who have a problem with it. It's It was clearly a red card. Okay. Howard, can you understand the um, Liverpool-Vincent Company tackle comparisons? Oh, God. <laughs> no. <laughs> No, it's really. I, I I can see it. I just don't agree with it, but I can, yeah. I can see it's a legitimate kind of um, gripe. Yeah, but who's mo- <laughs> if it was in the same game and they'd had you know a decision going yeah. against them? Yeah. Well, let's compare it to a nineteen eighty four tackle. What's the difference? <laughs> <laughs> Give a fuck. Just good God. Let's compare yeah, it to, no, yeah, let's no, bring no, in that's, Van Dyke's tackle against Napoli. Let's well, we bring, bring in one from 2012. What does it matter? No, but Howard, that's, that's completely disingenuous. You know it is. It was Liverpool against City. If Liverpool had won that night, essentially they would have won the league. Yes, and if no Bowley had not handballed one in, let's compare it to his goal earlier yeah, in the season. You, you can compare it with anything you want. You can compare it with, you know, the Everton game where they, the, you know, they could have lost if decisions had gone against them or... <laughs> No, I'm sorry. It's, I know people would do it. I'll do it. You know, <laughs> I'll be a dick about it in the future. Excuse my language. And but no, it does. It's specific decisions over a 38 game season. Just can't be bothered with it, to be honest. And they weren't the same. They weren't not identical. But yeah, it's different. Mm-hmm. As I said when reviewing the Bowley red card, it's it's on the edge and. Some referees will give it, some won't. They don't get a replay. I think this was the fourth... Yeah, someone on Twitter said it was the fourth official that gave this. Yeah, it's that happens. What do you want to say? Just comparing them doesn't change anything in the world, does it? It's a split decision of a referee. It doesn't even out. It's, it's you know, you're in the hands of the gods, so to speak, sometimes with when you make a tackle like this. You put it... You're giving the referee a decision to make. So, yeah, make, mm. company make got away with it because he could have been red carded whether you think it's a red or not but you know just in the same way Robertson got away with three penalties that you can't just compare thousands of things if you want to and you know it's just I'll shut up <laughs> no no mate I love it when you go on a rant um, listen I, I want to think say, it's Monday uh, wouldn't you the way I'm going on <laughs> it's been a it's definitely been an odd Friday morning um, yeah so Kyle Walker, I was really harsh on him 
in the review podcast on Tuesday. Um, I don't know what it was about his performance. Well, actually, I do know what it was about his performance that that kind of irritated me. And, I, and I, it, it was actually more that uh, more than irritation. It was a concern that maybe some of the things that some of the the things that were in his game that had crept into his game that had led to him being dropped still seemed a little bit present uh, yeah. against Wolves. So that was, I was actually going to go to you, Steve. Um, I felt I was harsh because of how good he was last season. Um, would you say that he deserves criticism or would you say that having been out, like wh- which side of the fence do you fall on in terms of going, well, he had no break, uh, over the summer, he came straight back in. I think he's had the, the shortest amount of recovery time of any World Cup player. Um, played nearly every game for three months. His form fell off a cliff, got dropped for Danilo, come back in. The whole Rio Ferdinand very publicly being deemed a liability. Do we need to get behind Kyle Walker? Does just mm. he just need to recover his form, his mentality, all that sort of stuff, or is there a wider conversation? No, you're, the word you chose there, criticism, is one hundred percent the correct word to use because that's what he's getting, and it's criticism. Mm. He is entirely undeserving of criticism. I mean, he's not showing a bad attitude. He's not kind of, you know, being half-hearted and, you know, he's lackadaisical, but that's coming from his, his form. Um, there's no reason to be critical of him. What what he is, though, is a cause for great concern. And that is exactly as you said, because uh, from the things he was doing badly before he was kind of rested, he's still doing. And that's concerning. So... Um, yeah, he was undoubtedly the, the the big negative to come out of the Wolves game. Um, he was kind of um, staying on the ball. Uh, there, was, there was a moment in the first half where he was going to pass, he changed his mind, and then he decided to try and take a player on when he was the last bloody man. And again, I'm not being critical of him. That's a really poor decision made in good faith, you know. Mm. And why is he making those decisions now? He never used to make such decisions. Um, okay, he was always prone to being caught out in a positional sense, but you know his decision making was always largely good, and um, he just doesn't look the confident player that he used to be. He looks half a player that he was. Um, I would kind of balance it out slightly by saying Danilo, who has been impressive recently, had a stinker in my opinion, or certainly in the first half. Um, it was like a running joke, really, where. I was totting up how many bad kind of um, touches he was going to have until he had a good a good touch, and it was I got up to about ten. Um, so yeah, both fullbacks didn't have the greatest of games, but with Walker, it's it's a worry because it's persisting now. It's it's, mm. it's going over the, the period where you think this is just a little dip in form into is it something else? But we've just very quickly we have encountered this before with players, and they do turn it round. Definitely, and I think gotta, I, gotta keep with him. Yeah, I, I I think that um, I think we are a little bit, and I, I definitely put myself in this box. I think we're a bit quick to forget just how good he was last season. Yeah. Um, I think that you know, I don't think that Kyle Walker will ever be Benjamin Mendy. I don't think he's got that kind of quality 
in his delivery. So he's never going to be a fullback that's going to get you 10, 15 assists in a season. But he was absolutely world-class um, last season. Um, Howard, firstly, I think Steve's been a bit harsh on, on Danilo. Uh, I thought he did a commendable job at left back. Um, your thoughts on on the fullbacks from the Wolves game and anything else that may have, you know, with a with a few days to reflect upon it, may have caught your eye or something you want to talk about? Yeah, no, well, I thought you were a bit fulsome in praise for Danilo over Walker. I don't, I didn't think that one that Danilo stood out more than Walker as a good okay. performance. And maybe okay. you've been praiseworthy because it's not really, you know, he's doing the job again in that position, like everyone who appears there seems to be this season. So we cut them some more slack. And I'm kind of fine with that. He is, because that's factual. We can't expect him, we shouldn't expect him to be world class if he's not a left back. Uh, the problem with Walker is moments. Uh, but Pet will know this, he'll be analysing it. He won't stand for it. So that's what reassures me. It's concentration. Mm. Yeah, you know, top class players, they cannot let one second you slip, you don't mark, you don't follow a player, you don't track someone. Just that that is it. That is the line between being top class and you know and not and being shipped out at this level. Uh, yeah. I think, yeah, you know, at first I just thought he needed a rest. Uh and he has been better. I don't think he's you know nothing Wolves was as bad as what he was doing before. You know, he missed a few games, but he still has work to do there. Uh, who knows, maybe, yeah. Well, no, we're not going to play with a back three, but you know the way he's been used for, for England. But, you know, the same... Are you confident he can recover his form? Yeah, I don't see why not. If it, you know, we did talk about last season, we didn't talk about him until he failed to track a player at Burnley away. Yeah. And when was that? That was deep into the season when we drew one mm. all there. Uh can I ask you a player? Because it's a uh, question, sorry. Go for it. Johnny asked on Twitter, or ONO5985, are we harsher on players when they make an error if they have a perceived weakness? And why do we fail to react when players like the Port Stones make an error? So, you know, when we look yes. at that company blame for two red card tackles because he's slow yes. and past it, yet mistakes that started, it's John Stones put company in that position. So I think it a bit ties into this this Walker thing. Do we, are we, you know, Danilo and me saying you judge him differently? Are we judging players differently here? Do we let stones off more than Walker, or is Walker well, just well, making we, more mistakes and lacking concentration? I think we do and we don't. I think we do and we don't. I think that there's a tendency with um, players who generally never let us down or who aren't perceived to have a weakness, there's a tendency to almost gloss over when they do something badly. But equally, I think that you can't escape unforced errors, so to speak. Yeah. So, you know, there's a... Uh, the the pass for Vinny is bad. Anna raised it at the time. Um, but there's still some decisions that... That, that Vinny's got to make. Whereas I think with some of the Walker stuff, it's really just, you know, you can't lose the ball in a one-on-one situation on the halfway line when there's literally only Edison and maybe Stones behind you. You see what yeah. I mean? That like that kind of, that sort of position, that it's just a really, there's, there's certain types of errors that I think are really hard 
for us as supporters to forgive. And actually, having just to kind of come back to the question that you've just asked me, maybe we're not, because I do think, for example, Leroy gets plenty of criticism if he's not tracking a runner. Mm. And he has cost us some goals, and he's taken the stick for costing us those goals. So I'm not sure. I think maybe with Stones, and, and I think also with Stones, we were very critical of him in the first season when he made a lot of errors. Maybe Laporte is the one where we c- he's so good at so much of what he does that if he does make a mistake, we do tend to gloss over it. Steve, do you want to chime in? Do you think I'm, do you think I'm right there? Do you think we, 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 we're, we're absolving Laporte more than we would others of mistakes? Yeah, that, it's just football. That's always been the case. And um, it's, it's never fair. It's never right. But that's just how we are. And it's just how you know, kind of fandom is. Um, so it's hard to kind of navigate that really. Mm. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, okay. Anything else on the Wolves game for you, Howard? No, not really. It was job done. Uh, absolutely. I hate that must win phrase, but, and I know you don't want us looking at Liverpool's fixture list, but I felt it was quite close to it because I think keeping the gap up for, for now is not, that bad news because our fixture list is harder. Uh, probably discuss that later. So yeah, it, it was a, a game we had to win, and we did. And, yeah. yeah. Well, to be honest, I that's you. You've segued perfectly into my next question, which is looking at our next four in the league. It's Huddersfield, Newcastle, Arsenal, and Chelsea. Arsenal, Chelsea, both at home. Huddersfield and Newcastle away. Um, Steve, is this an absolutely crucial period in the title race uh, unquestionably yeah um, I can't see us getting six points against Arsenal and Chelsea I would like to think that we will but you know there's a good chance that's not going to happen we we just I, I know how I just said he hates this phrase but we <laughs> they must win games they, but they are though aren't they the Newcastle game Huddersfield game they are must win games we've got to stay in contention with Liverpool um, before we encounter these two games. Because furthermore, um, both Arsenal and Chelsea will be playing them after Liverpool have played. So worst case scenario, we could be kind of going into an Ars- um, a game against Arsenal, um, seven points behind Liverpool. And that's when the pressure really is kind of, you know, on, isn't it? So uh, it's hard to predict Liverpool's results, you know, you just don't know. It's something kind of silly could happen against Palace this weekend, for example, and change the entire landscape of the next month ahead. But as we're, we sit here now, um, we've got a really... Well, we've got a couple of winnable games before we encounter one hell of a month, which will mm. define our entire season. Howard, if you look at those four fixtures... If you'd kind of take what Steve's said and turn it on its head for a second, is there an argument to be made that if City win the next four in the league, um, then the pressure going into the crucial Champions League, Premier League period, February, March, actually flips and, and, and goes to Liverpool, just in the sense that if you look at they'll be doing exactly what we're doing on their podcast, right? And they'll be looking at our next four or five games and they'll be going, right, realistically, we're probably going to be, I've heard them already say this, seven points yeah. ahead at the end of that run. 
If we get to the end of that run and it's only four points, doesn't the pressure massively increase on them because suddenly they got to go through their period of playing? I think they've got to play United. I think they've got to play Arsenal still, or maybe Chelsea. Um, they've also got to navigate the Champions League games. Does that flip the pressure and put it on them? It does, yeah. I mean, we've all done it as fans. Just like, you know, you look at, oh, they've got... Yeah, you know, if, if, if you go for a title with another team and they're at home to, I don't know... Brighton and they win they go well we expected that and then but then they win away in one way you think this is surely where we need to drop points they go away to Arsenal and win you think oh no that's really swung it their way I don't know how their players think I don't know how much they're in a bubble or clock but yeah if we get through those four it's got to put pressure on Liverpool because they are surely hoping that there are drop points there now Arsenal at home in theory should be a home victory. You know, Chelsea's probably the hardest one. You don't know what you're going to get with Chelsea. But we'll be big favourites in all four, even if, you know, even if Arsenal and Chelsea are like two huge games. We'll be huge favourites in both. So to drop points would be a failure of sorts. So it's not, yeah, I don't think it would heap huge pressure on Liverpool because they see it as two home games at City should still win, even if they are tougher than your average game. Uh, But if we do get through it with 12 points, it's got to have an effect on their psyche. Mm. That's my vibe. I think that, I think that those, I think if we can, if it's a big if, but if we take 12 points from those four games, then I do think that there will be an awful lot of pressure applied to them. Um, And it will be interesting to see how they, how they handle it. I think also looking at the Arsenal Chelsea games, a bit surprised that that um, Steve said that he doesn't feel that we'll take maximum points from those two. I think I, I feel as though we've seen enough from from Pep and from this collection of players, certainly at the Etihad in the last fourteen fifteen months, to know that you know if they pitch up with the eye of the tiger, they'll beat whoever's in front of. Oh, they're perfectly. It's- obviously perfectly capable of doing so and you know there's a likelihood of that happening but personally I, I, well, I'm just a bit pessimistic about it I know, and, I, and I completely understand that I mean I feel I feel as though um, they're, they're, our natural instinct as blues is to approach things with a little bit of pessimism and I think that I realise more and more that my own nature is simply to rebel against that negativity by being bullishly positive. So there isn't really a, a, a right or a wrong within this. It's just how we deal with mm-hmm. expectation. Um, okay, so Arsenal play Chelsea this weekend. Uh, Stee, mm-hmm. you've written about both teams quite a lot. So who do you feel is under more pressure going into this game, Sarri or Emery? Emery, without question, and Arsenal and Arsenal fans. This is um, a, a mirror image of City's game against Liverpool, where you know if Liverpool had won, uh, they would have gone um, ten. Oh, is it ten points clear? And when with City winning, it was four points. Here, um, it's a case of uh, nine points gap if Chelsea go on to win, uh, or it's reduced to three points, and the race for the top four is still on. So, whereas with City Liverpool, it was a title challenge, genuine six pointer. This is a Champions League qualifying top four, genuine six pointer. And it's Arsenal playing catch up. They have to win. Um, a, well, a draw 
and wouldn't be the worst result in the world. Um, but the problem is with Arsenal is they've been drawing too many times this season, as have Chelsea. Um, but all of the pressure is definitely on Arsenal. Chelsea have been getting it in the... Well, sorry, has been getting in the neck somewhat um, because they're... The results have been pretty okay, to be fair. It's just that the performances have not been so. Um, and this is not the sorry, sorry that we saw at Napoli. This was not the ferocious, rabid, kind of complete, you know, kind of side that he had at Napoli. Uh, this is a side with some quite serious faults, uh, namely in defence. Uh, William is, is not a popular figure amongst the Chelsea faithful. Uh, an over-reliance on Hazard. And, and just a lack of cutting edge up front, which perhaps they've solved now by bringing in Higuain. Um, but most of the problems, having said all that, lie with Arsenal. And they have to overcome those problems. And a run of poor form as well, a poor, run of poor results um, that they've been on of late. Uh, they need to do something. And the last thing I'd say as well about Arsenal is their record against the top six is woeful. Mm. It's just simply continued from Wenger's days. Nothing's changed. Um, and best encapsulated by the two results over the new year. The way that they collapsed against Liverpool was pathetic, utterly pathetic. It showed an absolute lack of spirit. Um, it's, it was the very worst of Arsenal. Three days later, lording it over Fulham. Oh, aren't we beautiful? Aren't we brilliant? Um, that's what they like, though, isn't it? Isn't that typical Arsenal? Um, when it matters, they collapse like a deck of cards. When it's at home against the relegation uh, struggling side, that they'll lord it about and knock it about like they're princes. So um, this is a big game against a, a, a fellow top six side, and they have to bring it. I mean, okay. they just have to. I I would uh, robustly disagree with uh, <laughs> a lot of what you've just said there. I'm really? very surprised. Um, and I'll widen this to uh, across the League Matters podcast that that you lads did the other day. I'm very surprised that you all feel that Emery is under any kind of pressure. Um, first season in with the business that they did in the summer, everybody's expectation coming into the season was that Arsenal were the ones who were who were the most short and therefore were the most likely to not finish in the top four. I think if you look at the points that they've accumulated over the course of the first half of the season, I think if you'd have given that, if you'd have offered that up at the start of the season, most pundits would have said they won't get that. And most Arsenal fans would have said, if we get those points, we'll snap your hand off for them. Um, So, I'm a little bit surprised that there's suddenly this feeling that Emery should be fighting for the top four. I think that from a squad point of view, from an investment point of view, they're the least likely of the top six to make it into the top four. Which we Um, agreed on the League Matters show eventually. We got there. Mm. I think, oh, as I said on that show, I think the nine, I think like nineteen matches unbeaten clouded a lot of people's judgment. I, yeah. I, I don't for one second think his job's under threat, but you can be under pressure nevertheless. And I guess you could say about any top, yeah, you know, any of those managers in the top six are under pressure. I guess that's why they're paid huge amounts of money. 
and just very quickly, I want to kind of make clear as well, like, that's exactly how I feel. It's not. I'm not suggesting that Emery is under pressure as regards to he might lose his job. He won't, but he's just under pressure. Just, you know, with all eyes on him yeah. and expectation. Any, any manager, no, that? it's any manager of a big club when form trails off, that they yeah. are under pressure by definition. He's got to, because yeah. that manager's job is to turn that around. And the, the more it goes on, the harder that gets. Mm. Do you think that in moments like this, um, the the pundit class or the media um, are a little bit, uh, how do I say this? That, you know, almost we as supporters or Arsenal supporters, you understand the kind of tension. But when you look at the kind of media in general, shouldn't they be more supportive of Emery because of all the things that I said about the fact that, you know, really least amount of investment, weakest squad in the top six, uh, probably the biggest shoes to fill because of who he replaced. Um, yeah. Is there not a sense that there should be a bit more? I don't think he had big shoes to fill. Really? No, because it wasn't the Wenger of 2000 and whenever, or it was the Wenger of 2000, you know, 18. I, I know what you're saying. It's there's a, there's a huge, it was, it's a huge job to take on after you've got someone who's been there, I don't know, 22 to 25 years, who's part of the club, who's brought, you know, created some of the greatest football Premier League he's uh, ever seen, who's transformed the way we think about football. But that guy was a distant memory. So, in some respects, I think he came, it was very good timing for Emery that. You know the expectations weren't that big for him because so many Arsenal fans have wanted Wenger to go for so long that they will now show a bit of patience. Does that make sense? It does make sense. It, it does make sense. Steve, do you think that the the Arsenal support then will be patient with Emery, or do you feel instinctively that there is a like, I, I feel, and maybe I'm being totally naive, but I feel that Emery could, you know, that their form could fall off a cliff and it wouldn't make a blind bit of difference that support are just grateful that Benga's gone and it feels new, so they're prepared to give him more than just this season. Am I being naive? No, no, I, I just don't think that tells the whole whole tale, but um, that's always the case, isn't it? I mean, fans are very rarely wholly behind a manager or wholly not. Uh, and they are frustrated with a lot of things that Emery does. I mean, the amount of times that they start poorly in games and then come into their own in the second half after a number of substitutions, that has to go you know, go back to his team selection, surely. Um, and regardless of team selection, the fact that he plays a double pivot midfield so often, even when a game you know, at home to Fulham, that is a source of huge frustration for Gunas. Um, you know, and I can completely agree with that. I, I don't understand the logic in that. It's fine if you're playing, you know, Chelsea away or at Old Trafford, but when you're at home against lesser teams, do you need that double double pivot in midfield? Mm. So there are aspects which really exasperate the fan base, but I would definitely say that they're still, you know, largely behind him and appreciate the very kind of factors that you've you yourself have raised. Um, you can't judge any manager until at least halfway through their second season after at least three transfer windows. Yeah. And he hasn't had that yet, so. Mm. Yeah, no, I would, I, would, I would go along with all that. Um, well, well, both managers are, yeah. 
both managers are, are judged on their second season, aren't they? So, yeah, yeah. And that's when I would especially say, Sarri, maybe, I think. I would say that Sarri and Emery have both overachieved. I know that I'm going to take pelters for that, but I think that they have overachieved. Uh, I think that coming, they're both managers who haven't managed in the Premier League before. I think for different reasons, they were coming into challenging dressing rooms. And if you look at what they have around them, they have Guardiola, Klopp, Pochettino, and they had Mourinho in there as well. And Mm -hmm. all of those teams have high quality, really expensive, high wage bill squads. So, and I'm not saying that Chelsea and, and, and Arsenal don't have those things, but I think that to come into the Premier League and to get their teams to perform in the way that they have, I'm really surprised that either manager is seeing or facing any criticism. That's not to say that they shouldn't be criticised for individual decisions. Like you say, Steve, the whole thing about the double pivot and all that sort of stuff as supporters and even from the media, you can be critical of tactical decisions. You can have that conversation as a discussion, but the kind of wider point of, you know, patience or the wider point of like how good a job they're both doing, I think they're both doing beyond fine. And yeah, they they deserve more time. Um, Okay, so specifically the game tomorrow, how do you think it's going to play out, Howard? Uh, I believe Arsenal are at home. Um, do you think they can land a punch on Chelsea and take the three points and really... Because if obviously if they take the three points and then United win, then, you know, the that fight for the top four is going to be crazy in the last third of the season. Yeah, yeah they can win. I would say Chelsea don't really know what you're going to get a lot of the time. I sound like Paul Merson now. Just <laughs> they're like a bag of revels. It's what he says about every single match preview. Like he calls them, he just says about Watford and Brighton and just, they're like a bag of revels. You never know what you're going to get. But, but Sammy is you no. Know, with this team he's got and the problems he's got, you know, sometimes when it comes together and it did in the second half against City, then you know you can see what he's trying to do, but it's not consistent. I think. I don't have the stats, but I assume Arsenal are still pretty damn strong at home. Uh, so, yeah, this is a game that could go anyway. Home, home win, draw, away win. So I think it'll be very interesting for that, in that respect. I'm looking forward to it. Steve? Yeah. Um, you think that you think that Arsenal will win it? Or do you want to give, me, do you want to give me a prediction for who you think is going to win it? I think it's a 3-1 away win for Chelsea and it's a game I'm really looking forward to. Um, they're often... I, I had to do a, a preview for a betting site and I had to look at every single encounter since 2000, like all 38 Premier League games. And I went into it thinking, oh God, this is going to be a fun one because, you know, everything always seems to happen when Chelsea play Arsenal and all the rest of it. Um, and what I realised is there's a lot of decidedly ordinary games when these two play. But when when... You know, the highlights reel is better than most. You know, when it is good, when it is dramatic, and when there are great goals and all the rest of it, then it really, really is kind of a notch above. So uh, I'm really looking forward to this game, and I think uh, Chelsea will win 3 1. Excellent. Okay. I think it's that's too old for me, by the way. That's what I'm going for. 2 2 for you. Interesting. I, th- I, I think that uh, Chelsea are a little bit. Um, in flux right now. I think Maratta has gone, Higuain has arrived, but probably won't be registered in time for the game at the weekend. Um, I'm not sure. I think maybe Arsenal shade this one. Also, I rate Emery. I think that, you know, in one-off games, 
he is very smart tactically coach and and I was surprised that they got undone in the way that they got undone by Liverpool and I don't expect them to get undone by Chelsea particularly not at home I I would expect that to be a a close game that that Arsenal end up nicking um okay last point of order uh, our blues our beloved blues play Huddersfield this weekend um David Wagner was uh left by mutual cons- the most mutual consenty of mutual consents this week. Sucked. Um, <clears throat> <laughs> it's, it's, Allegedly. It's, it's, yeah, methinks the lady doth protest too much. When I read that statement on, on their website that their owner or chairman gave, it was a bit like, yeah, mate, okay, you sacked him, just say it, it's cool. Um, were you surprised, Steve, that, that they chose to let him go in the sense that you almost feel like they are down now. So you think that this is a case of just planning for next season and going, we probably don't want him next season. So you should go now. Well, three days before uh, it happened, I wrote an article kind of being quite critical of Wolves and their involvement with uh, George Mendes and, and the whole model that they've got in place there. So I was being critical of that. And to contrast with that, I said that, in times of old, people uh, clubs look to the, Ch- the Charlton model, you know, the sensible model, the, the incremental model of mm-hmm. kind of gradually improving. And uh, and I said that uh, the best example of that currently is Huddersfield, though while they are struggling and you know staring relegation in the face, uh, the chances of them getting rid of Dave Wagner is is slim to none. Um, I got loads of abuse from Wolves because you know just because I've been critical of their club, uh, and then. Yeah, three days later, they were all back in their droves, um, in their black and gold droves, just kind of saying, ha, ha, ha. So, um, <laughs> yeah, just just a typical week for me. Yeah. Loads of abuse on Twitter for being an idiot again. <laughs> oh, poor Steve. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's my answer. I'm completely with your. I'm completely with your answer there, Steve. Um, <laughs> it's, no, it's, a bit, it's a bit weird because all the journalists, you know, you think have an inside view have said there was no problem with the style of play or anything, which may you know. So the only reason, if I didn't know anything about the club, is that they'd get rid of him. If, if you want someone to bring him back up, surely he's the best person. He's done it. Uh, and in harder circumstances, and yeah, you know, without looking at it from a distance, the only reason is would be playing style that they want a more attractive style of play. But what I've heard is that obviously I don't have the inside track. Is that they were fine with the way they were playing. So it's it is very strange timing for me, and obviously makes me worry because I know they've not got a permanent manager in, but they still get a, a caretaker manager bounce effect maybe on Sunday. But yeah. But then again, mm. yeah, they can only work with what you've got, so it shouldn't be a problem. Yeah, I mean, I think I think they they are an they this season have been an incredibly poor side, which is why they are caught adrift. Um, I think, to be honest, I, what I said at the top is probably probably the case. I think that's my vibe on what's happened here. I just think that I think for for Wagner, um, he probably should have gone at the end of last season. I think that keeping them up was a bit of a miracle and his reputation at that point was almost peak. And it was, it's like the Eddie Howe thing of like, you know, I mean, Eddie Howe, granted, he's kept Bournemouth in 
in the Premier League. But it's like coaches like that who at a certain moment are highly rated. If you stay at a lower club, sometimes it can be hard to, you know, you become, you the the footballing world see you as entrenched within that club and in that environment. And they begin to say things like, yeah, but maybe he can't do it anywhere else. Maybe he needs that environment. Um, so in that sense, for, for Wagner to stay in the summer was surprising for me. And I just think what's happened is he's made the decision that he's definitely not going to carry on if they're relegated. And he's gone to their board and gone, you know, just to give you a heads up, this is where my head's at. And I think their point of view has been, all right, fair enough, then you should probably go now, um, which does kind of make sense. You can't really get rid of a manager after they just kept you up. No. Really, though, can they? I mean, they couldn't have got rid of him in the summer. No, but I think from Wagner's point of view, I'm surprised that he himself didn't walk from the job. I appreciate why people would, kind of go, why would he quit? But my thing is, well, he probably knew they weren't going to spend any money to buy players. So he probably had a sense that this season would be tougher than last season and they could potentially get relegated. And, you know, if he was a careerist, if I was in his shoes and a coach that had the reputation that he had, I'd have probably taken that risk last summer where I'd have probably gone, you know what? Actually, I think I've gone as far as I can go here and I want another job and a bigger job and I want it this summer because my reputation is probably as high as it's ever been. Well, he turned down um, the Bundesliga job last season, didn't he? I believe, I believe he did. I don't know, it might have been Wolfsburg, yeah. I don't know, mid-season. I yeah. believe, yeah, I believe that he did. So this is what I mean that, you know, it's that's beginning to look like a, a bit of a miscalculation as well because, you know, Wolfsburg are a much bigger club than than Huddersfield with, with respect to Huddersfield. All right. So from City's point of view, how do we approach this? Um, it's, a lo- Steve, it's a low block, isn't it? Just yeah, putting it I mean, straight out there. So yeah, this is, this is going to be the lowest of low blocks. So my um, Steve, my question to you is I kind of posed this in the review after the Wolves game, um, looking at the team selection. Do you think that particularly in the back four, there needs to be a consistency? Uh, yes, but I would kind of add the caveat to that, which is I always feel that way, regardless of the situation. Um, I'm always kind of in favour of, of trying to, um, certainly with your centre-back pairings, get as much kind of uh, consistency as is possible to get, really. Full-backs, would you leave them the same? Walker and Danilo, or would you, for example, bring Zinchenko in because potentially he's a better attacking threat? Yeah, I, exactly that. I, I would bring Zinchenko in. I would stick with um, Walker um, because one thing I didn't say before when we, we touched on Walker was I believe you've got to play through uh, a player's bad form. Yeah. Um, especially if when he's good, he's very, very good. And, you know, let's face it, last season Walker was the best right back in, in the Premier League. So, um, yeah, I would start with Walker and Zinchenko. Um, but for me, yeah, centre-back pairing and Edison just kind of pick themselves. Just try and get consistency um, because there are gaps now appearing in the schedules, weirdly, even though we're fighting on four fronts. Um, for the next month or next five five weeks, it's actually not bad and then it really gets hectic. Mm. So if this affords us the chance of playing a kind of linear, consistent team uh, as much as we can. Okay. 
Good shout. Do you think that we'll win? I'm just going to put it bluntly because I want to wrap this up. Uh, I do believe we'll win, and I think it'll be uh, a 2-0 win. And the key thing with that new caretaker manager bounce that Howard mentioned, the key thing is, as corny as it gets, is just stay on top of him for the first kind of 15 minutes. Mm. And if we do that, we'll win. I mean, they're a team that scored 13 goals this season. Uh, mm, in 22 exactly. games. So they obviously struggle for goals. If you score the first, it, it shouldn't be a problem. But, you know, over the Christmas, <laughs> there were two games that shouldn't have been a problem that were. And they've caused us problems in the past. Yeah, we won 2-1 there. I don't know if it was last season, the season before, but it was a real struggle. We'd draw 0-0 in the cup there. But are we a weaker team here? They shouldn't threaten us too much. So the only way this goes wrong is if they frustrate us. So, you know, Obviously, Moy's out. I think till next month, he's been a driving force for them. Got that Philip Billing is kind of the nearest thing to him. He's keeping that midfield, midfield yeah. Yeah, yeah. very good. But they shouldn't have many chances. Yeah, we talk about chance creation. They shouldn't have many. It's about us getting through a pack defence. So. Uh, 3-0 for me. Nice. Very nice. Um, yeah, I I think that, that City will, will comfortably win as well. Um I think we'll kick on in terms of performance, goals, all that sort of stuff. Um, and I think in terms of the selection, just very quickly, uh, I'll, I'll give you each uh, uh, a choice. Uh, Howard Aguero or Jesus? Jesus, I think. In this goal-scoring form, sorry, I will be brief. In this right. goal scoring right. this goal scoring form, and let's not forget Aguero's not scored many goals away from home. I know he's still Aguero and we love him. In this goal scoring form, and I think work rate, you know, not that Aguero's obviously a shirker anymore, but his work rate and team against a packed defence could be vital. Absolutely vital. I'd go with Jesus. Though I did say not sure if it was Sean uh, MCFC on Twitter suggesting playing both. Uh, but I'm not I don't think he will, to be honest. I think Jesus for me, yeah. yeah. Okay. Eight goals, um, eight goals this year, isn't it? So, yeah. Okay. Steve, for you, final one, David Silva or Kevin De Bruyne? Oh, I am. Um, that is a decision that I cannot make because it should be made entirely on their kind of recovery from their injuries and who is in more need of minutes. Whoever is in more need of minutes gets, gets the gig. Okay, I'm I'm uh, I'm wrapping this up then, and I'd say that I'd I'd definitely pick Aguero and I'd pick De Bruyne and Silva. Definitely need to see KDB and Silva back in the same team. This was the Friday show on the ninety three twenty podcast. Thank you very much, Howard Hawking. Uh, pleasure as always. Thank you very much, Stephen Tudor. Pleasure, mate. Thank you to everybody who listened. Be safe, be well, and as always, up the blues.